All right, there they go. Would you bow with me now once more as we prepare to enter God's word? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you give us understanding into your word. And so I pray, Lord, by that same spirit, speak through me, your servant. Bring these words alive to each one of our hearts. And would we each uh, receive it as from you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today we are in Romans part 38, entitled A Clear Conscience. In the Focus on the Family magazine, author by the name of Rolf Zetterson writes the following story. A good friend in North Carolina bought a new car with a voice warning system. At first, Edwin was amused to hear the soft female voice gently reminding him that his seatbelt wasn't fastened. Edwin affectionately called the voice in his car his little woman. Well, he soon discovered that his little woman was also programmed to tell him about other things in his vehicle, such as if his fuel was low. And so one day as he's driving along and the needle on the gauge begins to go lower and lower, suddenly he's surprised to hear her soft, gentle voice say, your fuel is low. Well, Edwin nodded his head and thanked her. And so he continued to drive and a few minutes later, her voice interrupted again with the same warning, your fuel is low. And so it went on over and over again. And although Edwin knew that it was the same recording, he thought that her voice sounded a little bit harsher and a little bit more of an edge every single time. He was sure that he could make it the 50 miles to the next fuel station, and so he determinedly kept driving, but every few miles her voice kept repeating. Well, finally, he was fed up with her reminder that his fuel was low. He already knew this, and so he stopped his car. He crawled up under the dashboard, and then after a quick search, he found the appropriate wires, and he gave them a good yank. So much for the little woman. Well, he was still smiling to himself that he'd solved his problem, when just a few miles later, his car began sputtering and coughing and ran out of gas. Well, then, in the quiet, from somewhere deep inside that dashboard, Edwin would say to this very day that he was certain he heard the little woman's voice sweetly say, I told you so. (laughs) Well, in much the same way, when people ignore or even disconnect entirely that little voice of their conscience, it too can lead to disastrous results. Martin Luther King Jr. once said this, Cowardice Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Consensus asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? Is it right? Now, the Bible makes clear that God has given a conscience to all peoples of the world. All people have been given a conscience. And the conscience helps them determine between what is right and what is wrong, determine what is good and what is evil. In fact, if we go all the way back in our series to Romans chapter 2 and verse 15, you may recall that then speaking of the pagan Gentiles who didn't have anything to do with God or his law, even they, Paul said, were capable of doing good. 
Even they, without having knowledge of the law, were capable of doing things in accordance with the law on occasion. And of this, the Apostle Paul wrote back in Romans 2, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. And so what Paul is saying here is that God has given all people of every nation, even if they're the most pagan of peoples, they have all received a conscience which bears witness within them, sometimes defending what is right, sometimes accusing what is wrong. However, in Titus chapter 1 and verse 15, Paul also says that both minds and the conscience can be defiled or corrupted. And so even though created in God's image and his likeness, God has, has put this uh, warning system, if you will, in, in all people to help them determine what is right and wrong, it can be corrupted. It is not infallible. Then in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, speaking of false teachers, Paul says of them, Such teachings come through hypocritical liars, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And so the analogy he's using here is that when living flesh, if you've ever been burned and your living flesh has been burned, well, it, that's the idea he's saying. And so he's, he's taking the idea of cauterizing a wound, in fact, that if you take a hot iron and you have a wound that needs to stop the bleeding, you sear it with a hot iron and, and it stops the bleeding. However, it also scars the flesh. And this scarred flesh that's been seared with a hot iron will lose all of its sensitivity to all sensations, hot, cold, or even pain. It will no longer feel anything. It is numb. And so in the same way, Paul is saying that through repeated exposure to sin and deliberate sinning especially, a person's conscience can be seared. It loses its sensitivity to what is right or wrong. Until finally, like Edwin in the opening story, in a sense, they yank out that little voice entirely. And so, while God has, yes, given all people a conscience, because of the corruption of sin, it can still be ignored, it can be corrupted, and yes, it can be seared or removed entirely. And so, therefore, the conscience alone is not nearly enough to lead us to God or make us holy by itself. It is simply not up for the job. It's still good that we have a conscience, obviously. However, it alone is not enough. So therefore, we, we need to recognize that God will still use our conscience. And in fact, it's quite important in the process of our salvation that God will use our conscience to help lead us to himself. And he does this principally by bringing our conscience under the conviction of his word. So, Someone may, according to their knowledge, be going through life thinking, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. My conscience is clean. However, they, they come to, uh, let's say, an evangelistic service where suddenly they come under the hearing of the word and, and sin is being preached of. And in that moment, they recognize that I thought I was good, but in fact, now I recognize that I am a sinner. I am sinful. And their conscience is now convicted from the hearing of the word, and then of course we know it's not the word alone, it is the power of the Holy Spirit now speaking through the word to take that conscience which is now guilty and feeling convicted to say, now there is a solution for this guilty conscience, this conviction that you feel. H.C. Trumbull once said this, 
Conscience tells us that we ought to do right, but it does not tell us what is right. That we must be taught by God's word. And so, yes, our conscience helps guide us in the right direction, but ultimately we need God's word to instruct our conscience. And so our conscience must be educated by God's word and not the other way around. For God's word is the final authority on what is right and wrong and not ourselves. Some people will say, oh, my conscience is clear, and then they come to God's word, and God's word contradicts them, but they're putting their own views or conscience above God's word. That's not how this is to work. It's the other way around. Our conscience must be aligned and instructed and educated by God's word. And so in God's word, in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 22, we learn this. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. And so here again we see that it is only when we draw near to God with a sincere heart in true repentance of our sins, placing sincere faith in Christ that our hearts are then washed clean from a guilty conscience. And so here we see that again it is under the hearing of the word, confession of sin, repentance and faith that then our conscience is cleansed, sprinkled clean, the author says. And so then from that point forward, then with a clean, purified conscience through faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit then comes to abide within us. Our our body becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. And from there, the Spirit will continue to work through our cleansed conscience to help convict us of what is right and wrong, to help guide us in those decisions that we must make along the way. And especially when the decisions are not always immediately crystal clear to us. And so in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul sums up the aim of his entire life and ministry like this. He says to Timothy, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So here he, he sums up his whole charge, love that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And so too for us, alongside loving from a pure heart and a sincere faith, he says it's of equal importance and a serious matter that we as Christians aim to keep a good and clear conscience before God. And so this is an important matter. However, even in the life of a Christian, the convictions of our personal conscience alone does not have the final say. God always does. God always has the final say. Now, an example of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5. The Apostle Paul is, is often under attack from multiple sources, including from the own churches that he helped plant. And one of those churches that often challenged him was the church in Corinth. And so he's, he's giving something of a defense of his apostleship, and, and, and he says to them, uh, making a defense of some of the accusations that they had made against him, Paul, speaking of himself, says this in chapter 4 and verses 4 and 5. He says, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise 
from God. So even though Paul's defending himself and he says that his conscience is clear and he can honestly say that, he also had the humility to recognize that God was his ultimate, ultimate judge. He had the final say over his life, right down to the very motives, he says, of his heart. And so he says, us as human beings judge nothing before the appointed time. Leave that to God. Only God can truly know what is in the deepest recesses of the heart. And so strive to keep your conscience clear, yes, but do not pass judgment on one another over these things. That is the Lord's business, Paul says. And so this is where we will now jump into our primary passage in Romans 14. And if you're not there, you can turn there with me. And there in verses 1 to 12. Now, Paul lays the foundation for this passage in verse 1. He says, Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Now here Paul is addressing the simple fact that within any body of believers, within any church, not everyone will share exactly the same opinion or conviction on all matters of conscience. In fact, Paul assumes in this passage that there will be a wide diversity of viewpoints on a whole host of matters, which he labeled as disputable matters, or as the ESV simply translates it, opinions. Now, in our world today, there's a couple of opinions floating around out there, aren't there? Right? Just a few, right? We have opinions on everything, right? We, we, we discuss opinions. We have opinions. We hold opinions. We debate opinions. In fact, half the news headlines I see nowadays are not even news headlines. They actually, I think the honest ones at least, will, will say right in the headline, opinion, right? You ever see those? Where it's like the author is right up front stating, this is my opinion, and it seems like half of the news articles out there are starting with that title. Uh, and, and a lot of them that don't have that in the title probably should. And so invariably, on all of these various issues, I can go out and find an opinion piece that backs up my views on any given issue. But on the same issue, someone else could just as easily find an opinion piece that backs up their views on that. And so then we can both take sides and we can start lobbing our opinions at each other like hand grenades. But what good does that actually accomplish? What good? Well, I'd say very little. In fact, it usually does more harm than good, especially in relationships, especially between fellow believers. And that is exactly what Paul is addressing here. Now, to be clear, we must distinguish between essential Bible, biblical doctrines we must distinguish between biblical doctrines and our personal opinions over specific applications in our personal lives. Now, this is often boiled down to what we'll call big D doctrines or lowercase little d doctrines. Now, a big D doctrine would be Jesus' virgin birth. Now, Jesus' virgin birth, according to Scripture, is most certainly not a matter of personal opinion or viewpoint. It is a core doctrine that we must either receive or reject. And the, and the reason is clear. For if Jesus, if Jesus was not, in fact, born of a virgin, A, the Bible is lying to us because it explicitly says that he was, and B, if Jesus was not conceived by the Holy Spirit, then he was not the Son of God. So that means Jesus was lying to us about his claim of divinity, and he was just another man 
maybe a good teacher, but still utterly powerless to save us. And so either we hold to the doctrine that Jesus was born of a virgin, or we do not. This is not a a matter of opinion. It is a take-it-or-leave-it doctrine. And so, on this doctrine, because it is core to salvation and core to the, the scriptures, in that instance, if someone says, no, it's not a big deal if Jesus was born of a virgin, you know, there was, you know, probably just, it was Joseph, or maybe, you know, lots of girls came up with stories to explain how they were pregnant in those days, and here's just another story, but it's not a big deal, we can still follow Jesus. Well, if someone holds that viewpoint, in that instance, a corrective would need to be lovingly given, and only then, if that corrective is not received, then a parting of ways may need to happen, depending on the context. However, what Paul is discussing here now is not essential doctrines. He's not talking about uppercase D, big D doctrines. Rather, he is talking about disputable matters or opinions of people's personal convictions. Now, in verses 3 to 6, Paul gives two specific examples of what he is talking about. The first example he gives is of whether or not to observe dietary restrictions. And the second example he gives of whether or not to observe sacred days, such as the Sabbath or other Jewish feast days. Now, it's clear that for the context in the Roman church that he was writing to, these were hot-button issues that he is bringing them up here and addressing them, using them as his object lesson. Now, it's helpful as we look at these two issues of dietary restrictions and uh, holy days that the first century church in Rome was a mix of both Jewish and Gentile believers. And so, of course, the Jewish believers would have grown up under the Jewish customs of the law. So for them, it was ingrained into them that growing up under the strict religious observance of keeping the Sabbath, of keeping the feast days, and of only eating kosher food, that it's easy to see for them to have suddenly just started eating all the unkosher food and not observing any of the holy days, this would have violated their own conscience. If they just started eating pork and and working on the Sabbath, for them, this would have been a violation of their own conscience. And and actually, in Corinthians, Paul talks about, in such an instance, someone is sinning against their own conscience. Now, undoubtedly, it was of this group that Paul was referring to when he says, those whose faith is weaker. Now, on the other hand, it's easy to see how the Gentile believers, those Romans who did not grow up on any of those Jewish customs and laws, how they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, of Christ crucified, and they freely received that gospel of grace, and they just embraced this newfound liberty in Christ, and, and their consciences weren't violated at all about whether or not they, they ate pork or whether or not they did some work on the Sabbath or took too many steps or, or all of the things that the Jewish customs and laws had added on to the basic observance of the Sabbath. Their, their consciences were clear on these things. And so they are the ones who would have agreed along with Paul when he wrote to the Galatian church in Galatians 5 and verse 1 where he says to them, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery to the law. And these are undoubtedly the group that Paul is referring to as those with stronger faith. Now, when you add these two dynamics together in this passage, it's clear to see 
how these differing opinions between what would have been predominantly the Jewish believers and, and the Gentile believers, but in one church, worshiping together, fellowshipping together, this is causing disputes amongst them. It's causing division. And so we see that what Paul is addressing here, that the weak are judging the strong for what they believed was an illicit use of their freedom. But the strong were looking down on the weak for their lack of freedom, and each side was proceeding to judge the other from their own conscience in an attempt to compel the other to come over to their side, to their opinion, to their view. Now here, Paul, having laid out the framework of the dispute, he does something highly unexpected, at least for me as the reader. What I would expect is for Paul to wade into it and talk about the issues and the specifics of each issue and then explain to the side with the weaker faith how they are wrong and how the side with the stronger faith was right. That's what I would expect as the reader. However, Paul does something very unexpected here. He instead tells both sides that you are both equally in the wrong. You're both wrong. Why? And this is the thrust of the entire passage. Why? He says, you are both equally guilty of looking down on each other and passing judgment on each other. Because this is far worse than whatever issues you're quarreling over. Looking down on fellow believers, judging fellow believers, is far worse than whatever the nuances of your position are over said issue of dietary restrictions or or observances of holy days looking down on, judging one another. This is worse. And so we have to look again at the thrust of this passage. Verse 1. Paul, speaking to those who are stronger in faith at the outside of the passage, he says to them, accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Then, speaking equally to both sides in verses 3 to 4, watch his careful language here. He's speaking equally to both sides. He's not singling out one over the other. Both sides. Verses 3 to 4. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not. And the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? Then we jump ahead to verse 10. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. And then just in case he hadn't made his point quite clear enough yet, Paul kind of concludes this section. The first line in verse 13, he repeats himself one more time for emphasis. Therefore, in light of everything he's just said, therefore, that is what the there is for, He says, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. So Paul is, is, he's saying it as many different ways as he possibly can, that what is most important here is not the, the small details of your arguments over these matters of conviction or conscience. What matters most is that we do not look down on and pass judgment on one another. And so just in case Paul hasn't made this quite clear enough yet, I'll say it again. When it comes to matters of personal conviction and conscience over disputable matters, what matters most is not which side is more right or more wrong. What matters most is this. That as fellow believers in Jesus Christ, as brothers and sisters, 
We do not look down on each other. We do not pass judgment on each other, period. So then, what are we to do instead? Well, Paul said it right at the beginning of the passage, verse 1, accept one another. Accept one another. Acceptance is the opposite of rejection. Reject or accept. Paul says, accept. Because the human tendency, Paul knew it well, the human tendency is to reject. It's to look down on and to treat with disdain or outright rejection of those that we consider to be in the wrong. But if I do so, then I am the one in the greater wrong. I might, be, I might be in the right over whatever the little issue is that, that I feel superior on, that my viewpoint or conviction is greater than, but if I reject a brother over that, I am in the greater wrong. And so this is a serious matter. Paul says, don't do it. Do not judge one another. Because ultimately, he says it again and again in the passage, judgment belongs to God, leave it with him. Even in the end, let him sort it out, judgment belongs with God. Now, let me just give you a simple example. I like Coke. Always have. I'm pretty sure I always will. I I love Coca-Cola Classic. Now, I like Coke so much that I actually look down on Pepsi because it is an inferior product. I just don't think it tastes as good as Coke. I I think it's like kind of tastes like watered-down Coke or just Coke that's gone flat, maybe dumped a little extra sugar in there. It's just... Just Pepsi, I'll pass on it, but Coke is far superior, in my opinion. Now, uh, judging from some of the expressions out there today, I know that there's some of you who feel exactly the opposite, and you're like, Danny's wrong. Pepsi tastes way better than Coke. Now, from this point on, we could go on and on, and I can tell you that you're wrong, and you can tell me that I'm wrong, And I can tell you that you're wrong for saying that I'm wrong. And you can tell me that I'm wrong for saying that you're wrong. And then a third person might jump in and say, no, stop it. You're both wrong because root beer tastes way better than either Pepsi or Coke. And then a fourth person could chime in and say, yeah, absolutely. Because Hire's root beer is the best. To which the third person might reply, no way. A&W root beer is the best. Duh. And if left unchecked, this could just go on and on until finally, you know, we just condemn each other, shake the proverbial dust off our sandals, go our separate ways, divide up into four different churches, you know, one for the Coke drinkers, one for the Pepsi drinkers, one for A&W and hires, and and then, of course, we've got to throw in one for the um, uh, sparkly water drinkers, because we all know that those are the healthiest of carbonated beverages, and so therefore they're obviously the most holy, right? And Leanne's nodding her head. So, you know, now I use this somewhat silly example, and, and if you think it's a somewhat absurd example, it, it's because, of course, it is. And the point that Paul is going back to here is, and, and just with the dietary stuff, and he's just driving it home, is that on these sort of disputable matters, it is much more than just silly and absurd to do this with one another. It is flat-out wrong. It's flat-out wrong to look down on and to pass judgment upon fellow believers over things that we may differ on. So 
can I accept you even though I think you're wrong about the Pepsi? And can you accept me even though you know that I'm wrong about the Coke? And if so, can we then together accept those root beer drinkers and those weird sparkly water drinkers too? Like, can, can we do that? And well, of course, God's word tells us emphatically that the answer is yes. Yes. A hundred times over, yes. First Peter chapter 4 and verse 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Over it all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. In the 16th and, centu- in the 16th and 17th centuries, as the Protestant Reformation was really taking off, This issue of debating everything down to the smallest distinctives of the Christian faith began to spawn hundreds upon hundreds upon thousands of new denominations. Today in the United States alone, it's estimated that there are 250 major Protestant denominations. Major ones, that's not including the minor ones. 250 in the United States alone. But worldwide, no one knows the actual number of different denominations. Estimates are as high as 30,000, 30,000 different Christian denominations in the world today. And of course, each of them is just a little more right than everyone else, right? Isn't that how it works? All 30,000, every one of them say, we're just a little more more right than that other 29,999. And so it is no surprise that as all of this division was really taking off in the 17th century, in the, in the Protestant Reformation, as it was really taking, taking flight, there was a German Lutheran writer named Peter Meiderlin. And Peter Meiderlin wrote this now famous appeal to all Christians. Listen to what he wrote. In matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty, and in all things, love. St. Jerome recounts that the Apostle John, living in Ephesus into his old age, he would be carried with difficulty into the church by his disciples who would seek his counsel on many different issues and sometimes on their disputes. John, however, had little strength left for lengthy exhortations at this point, and so he would only say to them in Greek, Agapomen alelis. Agapomen alelis, which meant, let us love one another. Finally, the church members who were there were wearied by John's repetition, and they asked him, Master, why do you always keep saying this? The same thing to all of our questions. And John's reply was, because it is the Lord's command, and if that alone is done, it is enough. And so, Egopomen Alelis. May we love one another. May we strive to keep our own consciences clear before God as we seek to live according to His Word, as guided by His Holy Spirit. May we recognize that though we may sometimes differ with fellow believers in matters of personal conviction and opinions, we are all united to one head who is Christ. To one Lord, filled by one Spirit, and all saved and sealed 
by that spirit who brings unity. And so may we commit ourselves to never looking down on one another, let alone passing judgment, let alone rejecting one another, but rather accepting one another with sincere and deep love, which comes from Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we think about the diversity of your church and your kingdom on this earth, it includes all nations, all tribes, all tongues, and all peoples that in the end, your word has told us, will be worshiping before your throne together with one voice. And Father, we can only imagine all of the variety in your body, the variety of convictions, and let alone opinions. But Father, you have done such an incredible thing to say, this is my body, and by the power of my Holy Spirit, I will make them one, and I will be their head, and I will fill them with one spirit that will sustain and guide them, Lord. And so, Father, we see ourselves as just one small part of your whole body on this earth. And so, Father, as you have called and placed each one of us in this time to be a part of this body, I pray, Father, that we would receive your word deep in our hearts. That, Lord, even as we seek to keep a clear conscience before you, as we dive into your word, as we are educated and informed by your word and by your spirit, help us, Lord, to do this well with one another. And that, Lord, that in this process of sanctification, we would resolve to never look down on one another, never pass judgment, but instead from hearts of love that that look beyond the differences to what unites us, which is you, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, that, Father, we will accept one another humbly, recognizing that in the end you are our judge and you will set all things right. And so, Father, help us to walk humbly before you, and walk humbly in love with one another, that you would do a good work in and through us by your Spirit for our good and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.